You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. Very pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on this station, WFHB, at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Kate Cruikshank, who is political paper specialist for Indiana University Libraries. And Kate will be talking to us today about the 26th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Jim. Let's start, let, let's start off with um, amending the U.S. Constitution. What gives us the right to amend that U.S. Constitution, and what does it take to amend it? Well, the Constitution itself actually gives us the right to amend it in Article 5, and that starts out as, quote, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. So obviously, they thought there would be amendments. So to be proposed, an amendment to be proposed, it has to be, be approved by two-thirds vote of both houses, but then it must be sent out to the states for ratification and requires ratification by three-fourths of the states, so 30 of the 50 states, and only then can it become law. So it's the states that have the final say. Well, they didn't make it easy, did they? <laughs> no. So, so how many times has it been amended, and have any of those amendments been rescinded? Well, we now have 27 amendments. The first 10 are what we call the Bill of Rights, and they were ratified together in 1791. The other 17 were ratified individually, so that would be 18 times that it's been amended, I guess. One of those, the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, so-called, was passed in 1919, but then repealed by the 21st Amendment in 1933. But that's the only case. Okay, so let's talk about the 26th Amendment. What What, what is the 26th Amendment? And what exactly was the motivation behind it and how controversial, if it was controversial, was no, its passage? <laughs> could, say, could say a lot about that. The 26th Amendment lowers the voting age in all elections, state, local, and federal, to 18. And I emphasize that all elections because ensuring that was part of the drama of finally turning to a constitutional amendment to accomplish that goal. Um, there have been movements within individual states to get the voting age lowered for at least three decades, and in part because young men were risking their lives in World War II and then in Korea and then in Vietnam, but they weren't considered old enough to vote. By 1970, there were 10 states and five territories that had voting ages lower than 21. And interestingly, Georgia lowered the voting age to 18 in 1943, wow. and Kentucky in 1955. Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Montana lowered it to 19 in 1970. So there were pretty much steady ongoing campaigns at the state level, some successful, some not. Um, in the few years before it actually was passed, think about that context, 1968, 1969, 1970, and the chaos of civil rights demonstrations and you know, every everything that was going on. It became controversial in that period because there were a lot of people who said, they don't deserve the right to vote. And there were the others who had the traditional arguments. So at that point, it was very controversial. And I would just note, there's a, a wonderful book that came out last December um, that chronicles the, really the full history of this entitled Let Us Vote by Jennifer Frost. And she draws on a wonderful collection, our wonderful collection of materials that's gathered by some of the people who actually were the players in getting the 26th Amendment 
through. Okay. Now, some of these amendments seem to take forever, almost literally forever to get through. <clears throat> was this amendment hard to get past Congress or did states take a long time to ratify? You seem to have some inertia going for it to begin with. Well, that's what's really interesting because the brief historical accounts will always emphasize how short the time period was between introduction and passage, two months, January to March. And then again, between passage and ratification, March to July 1st, three months. And it sounds like it was all so simple, but in fact, the real story has a ton more background to it, a lot more players, and is much more complicated. Okay. Read the book, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, I'd like to talk about Indiana's own Senator Birch Bayh. Now, Senator Bayh played a very key role, as I understand it, in the passage of that 26th Amendment. What can you tell us about his role? Well, Bayh was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. That was later changed to Subcommittee on the Constitution, but at the time he was chairman, that was its bailiwick, Constitutional Amendments, and that was the first stop for any proposed amendment. So he was involved just by virtue of his position there. But he also had a background of supporting lowering the voting age from his time as Speaker of the Indiana House in 1959-1960. But there's a bit more, and let me just give you try to give you a real quick bit of background on this. Uh, when the Voting Rights Act was up for renewal in 1970, Senator Edward Kennedy and some others decided that adding an amendment to that act, in other words, a legislative, a bill, uh, to lower the voting age was the way to go rather than going for a constitutional amendment. And that was actually passed in July 1970. But it, and, and all the young people went out and registered people to vote and the onslaught of young voters was seen as coming right down the pike. But in December, at the end of December, the Supreme Court said that Congress only had authority over federal elections, which meant that the states would have to separate registration systems and ballots for two populations. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was huge. And Bai jumped right on that. He immediately wrote to all the secretaries of state inquiring about prospective problems and costs. And he published that in February as a report of the subcommittee, which provided really super concrete evidence that the constitutional amendment was really the only viable option. So it was a huge role in that regard. That was, let me just add one other thing. That was at the same moment that Common Cause, which was a brand new organization, stepped in to support the movement for constitutional amendment. And they funded staff to lobby both members of Congress and state legislators throughout the country. And he, they worked with by and with Common Cause to build the pressure that made the whole thing look so simple when they got to it. Well, that was quite a start for Common Cause, I must say. Yes, definitely. Very impressive. Um, Senator Bai also tried, but failed repeatedly, just always failed to eliminate the Electoral College, favoring the popular vote for election of the president. What was his motivation there? Well, I, you know, I can't speak for him, but it, from from what I've read of his of his work, I think that that his thinking was that the Electoral College, like the Senate, we might note, gives disproportionate influence to states with small populations. And I think he saw its elimination as a way to ensure that every vote counted and counted equally. Okay. It was a matter of principle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, okay. Most, Tell most us that. For a matter of principle with Birch Bay. <laughs> yeah, I know. And hooray for him. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Political Papers Archive at the Herman B. Wells Library. What political characteristic characters are part of that archive? Okay. It has kind of an interesting history that 
the collections that are now in it started out at the Lilly Library because that was really the only repository on campus for valuable collections of papers that don't directly relate to the history of Indiana University. Obviously, we have the IU archives, but that's focused on Indiana University histories. In, in late 2009, Modern Political Papers as an Entity was set up and the collections of Bai and Congressman Lee Hamilton, Frank McCloskey, and J. Edward Rush were transferred from the Lilly to Modern Political Papers. Um, the Lilly does have some smaller collections and they do have Charles Halleck's papers. But since 2009, the ones that the recent acquisitions have come to Modern Political Papers. So we have gotten Senators Richard Luger and Joe Donnelly. We have gotten Congressman Dan Burton, Mike Pence as Congressman and Congresswoman Susan Brooks. And then we also have the papers of Indiana State Senator Robert Garton, who was president pro temp of the Senate for 25 years, and a growing collection of campaign memorabilia, some oral histories related to Senator Birch by staff, and it continues to grow, continues to grow. Well, so that's all quite of this, a... All of this can be found by searching, Googling, modern political papers at IU. <laughs> okay, well, that's quite a collection. Uh, what do you feel is the importance of maintaining this kind of archive? And once it's been formed, who accesses that kind of archive and for what reasons do they access it? Um, I'll ask, I'll answer you second, the second part of your question first. The people who access it generally are advanced researchers working on articles and books on particular issues. Um, but I would really like to see them used by people who are just interested in how Congress really works. And here's my thinking. The papers in those collections are produced by the staff of a member of Congress. I mean, that's that's what those collections are. And they are the only primary sources we have for what goes on in that office. Um, everything in print is edited. Everything in the media is incomplete and possibly misleading. Um, and I'm speaking from my own education working in these papers. The memos that staff write on a particular piece of legislation or on their work with the staff of other members capture the dynamics of the work of legislating in a way that nothing else does, um, showing how they work with people of diverging perspectives to come to an agreement on major issues. I mean, it's really, it's inspiring when you read this stuff. Um, and I think especially in this era of distortions and easy lies, seeing the actual documents from the work of members of Congress can restore us to the reality of what means to, to keep a representative democracy going. Um, I really hope that we can find a way to attract people who are just interested in Congress to these papers. And uh, the challenge I see is helping them see the kinds of questions they have to which these collections might help provide answers. And that that is a challenge. Okay, now you've already touched on this, but I want you to give you a chance to really emphasize it if you choose to. As an archivist, do you feel that it's critical for us to maintain the past and what it teaches us? And why is that? An archive preserves the documentary evidence of what actually happened. Um, many interpretations can be made on the basis of that, some of them conflicting, but the archive is what holds that basic evidence to which we can return. Um, and the 26th Amendment really provides a case in point. As I mentioned, most historical accounts dismiss it as quickly and simply done and focus on Congress as the arena in which that occurred, which completely misses about 90% of the story. Um, I mentioned that collection on the 26th Amendment put together by people who had been the young movers and shakers that made the whole thing happen. We got that collection last September, 
and it's full of, of I've got a document by document listing online. Uh, you can actually track the scope and intensity of their efforts, the complex networking with other organizations, other people across the country, their efforts at both state and national levels. It's like a guidebook. That thing is like a guidebook to how to create change at the national level. It is just amazing. Well, you've convinced me. And thank you, Kate Crickshank, for telling us all about archives. And to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison, League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's been fighting ever since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson, Assistant Professor of History and Political Science, University of Indianapolis, and she's also co-director of the Gender Center there. And she'll be talking to us about the increasing number of women in the Indiana legislature. 